0: The subject for this evening's talk is the practice of equanimity. There was a time in the uh, insight meditation tradition when one of the features of the heart called love, loving-kindness, deep friendship, the practice of that metta, M-E-T-T-A, was rather largely uh, confined to the end of retreats, that in coming to the conclusion of the uh, retreat, there would be a formal loving-kindness meditation in which the deepest wishes of the heart would be extended towards all beings, both near and far. This, of course, was frequently expressed during the uh, retreats as well, sometimes at the end of sitting meditations with the refrain of Sabe Sata Sukita Hontu, which means, May all beings be happy. May all beings live in peace, in harm- harmony. And in recent uh, years, noticeably, there has been a growing interest in the practice, the application uh, and techniques, in fact, of loving-kindness meditations. Yvonne gave such a meditation, guided meditation here the other day. And some are extending those periods of time of uh, meditations into days and uh, weeks. Just at this time in Uh, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Western Massachusetts, USA. There are several people, possibly more, who are giving perhaps some, if maybe all, of that retreat to these loving-kindness metta meditations. One of the values of them is that they do contribute usefully and beneficially to the warmth of the heart and to altering and influencing uh, perceptions towards a, m- a more warm and caring outlook towards oneself and others and therefore bringing greater kindness to one's life and to the life of others. There are also subsidiary motivations which are uh, taking place that in bringing together the loving-kindness and the warmth and more heartfelt feelings and awareness it also can contribute as well towards deeper inner absorptions and that in itself contributing to deeper happiness and well-being and one of the outflows and benefits of that is less pressure and less demand on the world because one experiences greater contentment within. And. Therefore, in some time, some of the teachings and practices are usefully, and as I say, beneficially, working with these kind of, uh, of medi- meditations. For some, where particularly there's a lot of uh, pain in life, in the rather hardcore situation of face one's existence, as goes with insight um, meditation, the ability, in fact, to face a great deal of personal pain physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, psychological. Some can be too much and too hard and it might require for such people such kind of meditations as a support and as an aid, in fact, to feeling more comfortable with oneself and with existence and perhaps with others towards one has harbored, perhaps for a long time, a great deal of uh, negativity and uh, ill will. So the benefits are uh, fair and uh, widespread and beneficial. They in fact belong to a uh, quartet one might say, four features of what is referred to in the, uh, from the Buddha as Brahma Vihara. The word Brahma means God, it means divinity. Vihara means abiding, a divine abiding. And in the um, loss of belief of that, of the god up there, so, so to speak, which is so familiar to uh, conventional, non-mystical religion, that been assumed within this tradition that the truly divine thing of life actually resides in the heart and in particularly in four ways where there's opportunity for four kinds of abiding. And one of them is that initial one that I just referred to, which is, the, is metta, deep friendship, towards life. And that metta may express itself as love, may express itself as a deep kindness towards existence, human beings, animal creatures, animals, the environment, of course, itself. And when the heart is suffused in a profound way with kindness, it will generate everywhere and therefore be of inner and simultaneously outer benefit. And there are much benefits too for a human being with, with kindness towards life. One doesn't have nightmares. One feels comfortable and safe and secure in this world. One is protected from a great deal. And there are many deep benefits in life from the inner kindness and depth of sensitivity and respect for life, which is all manifestations of of metta that can influence what we say, what we do, how we act, who we are influences what our priorities are, it influences what we eat, what we drink, where we go, etc. What the motivations are. All of that influenced by a sustainable and applicable meta kindness in life. But as I say it forms one of four. And the second one is compassion the direct relief of suffering in this world and I'm sure we would all agree that the degree of suffering in this world is immense and tragic and so unnecessary. And the third one is joy, mudita, m-u-d-i-t-a, joy. Uh, the joy has its inner manifestation of emotional, psychological well-being. To be joyful is to have a very emotional, health, uh, healthy emotional life. But the joy also shows itself in the natural feelings of connection and empathy with others. One is happy for the happiness of others, glad for the gladness of others, joyful for the joy of others, content for the content of others. And that can't be artificially contrived. Mind can't do that. One just feels happy and grateful and appreciative of others. And they're all profound expressions, as I say, of a way of being in this world in which the divinity of life rests in the heart, the heart has genuinely been opened and transformed and with that comes its manifestation in how one perceives the world itself, one perceives, if one might say, rather <coughs> heartfully. It would seem a little bit odd, initially, to speak of of friendship, of love, of metta, of karuna, compassion, of spiritual joy, and then equanimity at the end of it. It doesn't seem quite such a heart-feeling experience. But it certainly is, and, manif- and matters uh, equally to, to the other three and in its relationship to the, the other three, what do we mean by equanimity? What is this equanimity, this steadiness and steadfastness of, of mind? What, what ways does that show itself? An expression of it, in fact, is in the short and in the long term. In the short term can be that there are Particular tendencies which arise, sometimes uh, fiercely, alarmingly, unexpectedly, tendencies towards, I spoke about yesterday evening, fear, uh, tendencies towards uh, addiction, tendencies towards obsession, tendencies towards anger, towards um, uh, egotism, selfishness, all the forms that you and I could easily and uh, quickly bring to mind. And there are points in the movement of those uh, tendencies where they grab, grab the mind, grab the attention, grab, become a fixation in all the ways that that can happen. Equanimity is the ability to stand steady in the face of. To stand steady in the face of. And the two forces which push and pull on existence, on human existence, are essentially attraction and aversion. And traction in, I'm not speaking of kindness and warmth that lends us and to connect warmly and affectionately with other human beings. I'm speaking of attraction here where one knows that the force of the attraction itself is going to generate suffering for oneself and others. So in the pull towards, where there's holding, identification with the potency of habit or whatever it might be there can be a signal don't go down that road, don't follow that don't go that way one knows as the Buddha frequently said it leads into the field of Mara Mara kind of religious personalized language of uh, the force of temptation which grabs upon that generates suffering of temptation which grabs upon and generates suffering. It's called Mara. M A R A. And that equanimity in such times and in such moments matters considerably more than the kindness, than the compassion, than the joy. That may not have the potency and the strength in that moment to stop the movement in this case, of attraction towards. And then that equanimity in the mind and in the heart, right through the being, to stay anchored and steady, is the clearest demonstration of what's necessary when we're faced with the force of attraction. And we know to follow it through, it's going to generate more problems than it's worth. And the experience sometimes of short-lived pleasure long-lived pain. Why? Absence of equanimity, absence of the capacity to break, to dissolve the critical point of movement beyond the point. And practices and teachings here are to keep expanding the consciousness, to keep working w- with, and that can show itself in just the simple things here as part of one's practice. One wishes to eat more one knows that one has enough nourishment for the day force of attraction towards one knows if one consumes more one will feel lethargic Uh, heavy, dull, cloudy for the rest of the day is there the equanimity there in that moment to say let's be with what is we move towards more, etc. as one small demonstration of finding equanimity when one needn't move towards more. But there is also that other force as well of aversion. And with aversion, it can be not so much a concern about, a criticism towards, uh, um, an expression of... Uh, way of seeing. But aversion is that state of mind where just as much as there's a force of going towards, there's a force of going against the twin ills of the mind, we could say. And in that aversion, something occurs from within or without. And we get caught up in reactivity. We blame as a common expression of aversion. We put down, we want our own way. We stop bullying, we uh, um, get negative, hostile, revengeful, or whatever. All of that is that force of aversion towards. Not only, of course, can that be directed towards others near and far, it can be directed uh, towards uh, various beliefs, but equally, of course, it can be directed towards oneself the blame that we can heap upon ourselves, the the guilt, the condemnation, the the ridicule, the undermining, the cultivation of the feelings of worthlessness, etc. They're all the forces of aversion towards oneself because of the way one is looking at oneself, because of the way one is looking at oneself. And we're saying in these uh, deep teachings of equanimity Let us find practices and ways and means, as we do in our sitting especially, to be equanimous, to be able to sit and to be with what is, to see the changes, to see the impermanence, to see the letting go, to see the coming and going of, of discomfort, to stand steady, to bring the mind back to the here and now, which is the finest resource that we have for equanimity. And then when we bring that to To all of that, it's a very grounding principle. We feel the support of life as a support for equanimity there. And therefore, as I say, mattering equally as the other three which I just referred to. Friendship, compassion and joy in the field of existence. Buddha used a powerful uh, analogy for equanimity. He said, make your mind, he said, like the earth. The earth can be abused, the earth can be mistreated, the earth can be urinated upon, pissed upon, he said, but still is able to stand steady in face of all this abuse. Make your minds the same. So can we in life be misused? Can we in life be uh, abused and mistreated? Can we in life be pissed upon, hopefully metaphorically speaking, (laughs) and deal with it with equanimity there. But there's enough craziness in this world that we're not even safeguarded from being pissed upon non-metaphorically, as we know. So in this world that we live in, this practice of equanimity, standing steadfast, the ability to stay that in the face of the push and pulls of existence are a tremendous acknowledgement and of the capacity of the human mind and heart to be with what is. But it also has its, not only its short term when we find ourselves caught up suddenly in something and moved along by something, but also, it has its significance in the long term. And in the long term, it perhaps relates rather importantly to the whole area of vision in life and the, vis- the vision of what matters. And in keeping true to that vision, one has to stay very, very economist and steadfast with it. And o- over the years, as I say, as if I may say for a moment as a small uh, servant of the Dharma of course I've had the opportunity to meet and talk with thousands, thousands of people in retreats, out of retreats all manner of places and environments circumstances and situations in which for one reason or another uh, people have made contact with me or I have made contact uh, uh, with them one of the things which is uh, matters a great deal and uh, Buddha refers to this, is this matter of vision in life. Vision with the nature of things, vision with the truth of things, which the word he uses uh, in the Sanskrit, which some of you will be familiar with, is darshan. Of course it got utterly abused in recent years with these egotistical gurus. But darshan means the real meeting with the truth of existence, the seeing and the contact with the truth of existence. And that's the darshan of existence darshan of existence and with that darshan and that vision which goes with it keeping that sustaining factor there through thick and thin is often no easy task and many in I'm sure some of you here know this how easily times in life there can be the possibility the movement towards the interest in in quite nice and pleasant ways, whatever it, it might be, and how easily in that it can not necessarily so can become a tremendous diversion. And I've received many many letters over these past twenty years, and many people turning up on retreats, who have said to me, you "No, know, Christopher, I came and sat a retreat with you or with somebody else some years ago. I went to, I went to uh, India or, or Thailand or, or, or Burma." I had those times in my life when I was really deeply into understanding and to really discovery and inquiry and finding out what it's all about. And then something just happened. Seemed a very small thing at the time. I started a, a relationship. I, uh, I went to live in the city to learn a trade or skill or something like that. And just somehow one thing led to another. Hardly, I'd hardly noticed it. And now I find myself completely where I was before that period of, which was such a significant period in my life. I seem to have come more than, more than a full circle. I seem to be, have, as it were, taken three steps forward and I've seen the years go by and I've now taken four steps backward. And I wonder what, 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 what happened to me? How did I get distracted? How did I lose the middle way? How did I lose that sense of vision and all that goes with it? And that easily can happen. And it's not like a, anybody is saying, I, I reject uh, uh, the teachings of wisdom and compassion. I don't believe anymore in a life of discovery. It's not like there's some kind of conscious choice and conscious decision which is made. That very rarely happens. Most people see the common sense of the teachings. But just step by step, bit by bit, bit by bit, as. You, going down a road and one's only got to be one degree off that road and it doesn't take many hours or many days to be way off track what's going to keep that vision of things there and it's going to take uh, a great deal of equanimity it's going to be a need and require from us the capacity in life and the ability in life to be able to say no so the vision is kept pure and intact right till the breath gets squeezed out of the body. So we have that application of equanimity applying itself to immediate things where one knows, be grounded, be economist, be steadfast. And if it means, sometimes if it means some suppression which jars some people just hearing the word suppression, even if it means some suppression, sometimes better for equanimity and some suppression to it, than just to willy-nilly follow up every impulse and every desire and everything that you and I want in the name of I'm not suppressing. But hopefully there can be an equanimity born out of wisdom, born out of clarity, born out of a simple and pure and direct knowing that it is inappropriate, unskillful, unwise, unnecessary to go forth in this direction or in that direction. Sometimes, you and I, we can't expect ourselves to have all the clarity and the, and the intelligence and the wisdom to know what is necessary to be economists about, what is necessary in life to say yes to without dependency on results and to say, no to, because one knows it's a path of trouble. And that's why we need the voices of others. Sometimes others do, for all of us, without exception, see us better than we see ourselves in some areas. Some people know us better, and that one doesn't need teachers so much for that. One naturally just needs friends, and as the Buddha said, friends are people who give one insight not people who flatter, not people who fawn after us, but people who are steady and economists with us and who have an experience of freedom to say this and say that to us. They're they're real friends of existence. Kalyan and Mitra, really good friends, decent friends, close friends. So as I say, in the looking and the facing of existence, to actually expect of ourselves to be economists and to know when equanimity is appropriate. Sometimes we don't. We don't. And therefore we need others pointing out to say, to remind us. And I'm sure all of us can think of particular times in our life when we've been grateful for that single voice. Very grateful. Sometimes we, we, we marvel at equanimity. Just uh, during the retreat, uh, Antonia put in, pinned up a quotation from uh, um, Nelson Mandela. And recently, I was reading some uh, extracts from the autobiography of Mandela. And there was one incident which struck me. It struck me as a human being, it struck me as a teacher, it struck me as a as a as a parent. And that was in the latter part of the 1950s when the South African government and its obscenity of apartheid, the state police knocked on his front door. He was there with wife, his children to arrest him and they handed him his arrest warrant and said to him you have been charged with treason Accompanying us to police headquarters can you imagine the emotional impact on one of the severest allegations that can be ever put upon a human being. You have been charged with treason. And the consequences of that. And so a 27-year period followed from all of that. And one would have thought that such a human being, deprived of everybody and everything which he loved, incarcerated, What would have gone on in the heart and mind? How come that this human being didn't come out of it bitter, cynical, depressed, hurt? How come he didn't come out of it and say to the ANC, let's take our revenge on these people who are are, are secured and sustained such an evil system of human relationship. He didn't come out with an extraordinary degree over the long term with equanimity, with vision, and with an unusual degree of, of kindness. And people who know of him, people who know him, speak of this. Someone sometimes wonders in the potency and the power of silence for which he endured many years, and of solitude, the capacity that silence has, and stillness has, in those probably long nights that he experienced alone in the cell. Perhaps, in some extraordinary way, the efforts of the South African secret police to get rid of him, liberated him, enlightened him. Actually had the precise opposite. They didn't know what it meant to put a human being into silence and stillness. And they didn't know that some human beings respond in extraordinary ways and it brings the very best out. So this world that we live in. And of course, there are many features of Mandela and, and, uh, and uh, others. I want to elevate the man in uh, there. But many features of our looking and exploration, of finding ways in the midst of this field of existence to find an, equ- an equanimity which is not pushed and pulled about, as I said, by the forces of attraction and aversion, the likes and the dislikes. movement towards whatever you and I have moved towards of course many things that's minor, minor, minor things we could say every step in our life is a movement towards and in the taking of a step towards we could say it's we're leaving something behind that's the character of going towards and in that movement towards as I say sometimes the idea sparks to do something. We get an idea to do something. I want to do this. And once there is a wish and the wanting to do, we need to be interested in the intention and the movement itself, but also, and very much so, the relationship to results. The relationship to results. And one of the self-deceptive factors of human existence is that having as it were believed in, the, initi- in the, the initiative for the result, for the initiative towards, having started something there's a kind of deceit that goes with it, that having decided to do something therefore the results are with oneself as well. I start, therefore I deserve I should receive, I should get what I have put into, because I started it. So the self, the I, starts off in the position of being the creator, and because it feels it's to be the creator, itself to be the creator, it feels, therefore, it's in charge of the results. Life just ain't like that. It's unreal. It's an unreal situation. And yet because the Self weaves its way through the intention, the action and the result, in fact the results is what we select out of a situation. What we actually pick out, we, and out of the vast field of existence we pick things out of it and we say what I picked out, that's the result that's the result of what I've done that's the result of my intentions that's the result of my actions and, and therefore this is the fruit that has been born and it might be for a very few people that everything that one wants in life comes true. The world, of course, wouldn't last one minute if that was widespread. The earth couldn't take the resources. It couldn't take the demands of human behaviour. It can't even take it now when millions and millions can't even get what they basically need which is their basic requisites, food, clothing, shelter and medicine. It's only... There's the movement that goes on and one says, I want this. Even if one got everything that one wanted. Nice relationship and nice home and good salary and good pension and good job and lots of friends and a nice place in the countryside and all those other things that secularism tells us we should have. It would be from another level of love, of compassion, of joy and of equanimity. From that level of looking, not even ultimately, that level of looking, to secure and get everything that one wanted in life would be, in those secular terms, a complete waste of one's existence. The earth can't tolerate it it marginalizes more and more other people, all for the sake of the self. So, bringing of equanimity in relationship to joy, in relationship to compassion, in relationship to deep friendship, bringing of equanimity, as I say, one area of it is this relationship to results. How do we review results? And one of the most common interpretations of results with sometimes alarming speed is viewing results in terms of success and failure. And the happiness and the despair of the self relates so much to the interpretation of interpretation of results in the form of success and failure. From work, study, relationship, health, one's whole life, anything can be subjugated, and brought into the parameters of success and failure. And we get so fixed about it. Every wretched sports game, much as some of us love sport, much as one loves the participation in it, the observation on it, It hangs on success and failure, winning and losing. And one only has to see the faces of the end of the football match, the end of the 100 metre dash, the end of the baseball game or whatever it might be. (coughs) To see the power of investment in result. Sheer delight at winning an absolute horror and despair and feelings of failure at loss. With huge careers and egos all at stake to go with it. It's all about relationship to results of the self. And we get so used we can't think in any other way. Is there another way to look? And certainly that will require, in a vision, a way of looking in which equanimity must be running through the intention, the action and the results. We must find out what equanimity is. But in saying that, it's not in any way to make equanimity to the movement and the unfoldment of life make some goal in itself. Its only, its primary function is to create and generate in life enough steadiness and enough well-being to realize the truth of things which doesn't know neither cause nor effect, doesn't know initiation and result. It's a human pulling out and a human interpretation Can we find an equanimity towards the field of existence to realise the uncaused, to realise that not of cause and effect? So the teachings of divine abiding while acknowledging the importance and the value of heartfulness of loving-kindness, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity, and the immense significance of that for the welfare of the earth and all its people and creatures has never elevated that divine abiding into the supreme thing. Present, yes. Potent, yes. Beautiful for human manifestation but the realising of the uncaused, that's the essential, not of cause and effect. May all beings see the practice of equanimity. May all beings be touched with the nature of things. May all beings realise the true nature. So let us have uh, two minutes of shared uh, silence together, shall we please?